Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today, a really interesting conversation with pre-seed investor Gaurav Jain. Before we get into the interview, here's this. How do you know if you're doing the right thing with your life? I'm reading this book now called Tribe, and it analyzes humans from an ancient perspective and really what our primal instincts are. I'm only a couple pages into the book, but I've already found it interesting how it says that feeling useful is one of our main happiness drivers. We all want to feel needed. In our current society, a prestigious job or making lots of money plays right into this. But what if you don't have a prestigious job and don't make lots of money? Then how do you derive your purposefulness? Well, look at me. I went to good schools and I did have prestigious jobs, but not for a long time. And honestly, it's difficult being content right now. I've been working on my startup for a year and a half. We've built and shipped a product. We've raised a little bit of money and are constantly pushing to that next level. And things are going really well. But that level where we raise real money and get real external validation, that's our next step. But until then... I'm building something that the world doesn't believe that I can do and making no money for it. I don't know what the answer is. Startups are just hard. I guess most people would have given up by now, but that's what differentiates the winners from the losers. We're building something incredible that's going to change the way people interact with money. Of course, it is not going to be easy. If it were, it would have been done by now or the outcome that we know that we're striving for, it wouldn't be there. It's certainly difficult not making money. It's difficult building a business from nothing and having nearly everyone doubt you. Basically, the universe is against us. Do I believe that we can do it? 100%. That doesn't mean I don't struggle with you know, our society's pressures of wanting to show results and, and make money because I certainly want those things too. Uh, but beyond being able to pay for stuff, money is a big external validator. It says that our society values what you're doing and is rewarding you for it. So yes, for me, not making money is difficult because I can't pay for stuff, but, but also because it says society doesn't value what I'm doing. Well, not yet. That's the key piece, the deferred gratification. We're swinging for the fences with Pay Club, foregoing making money for a long, long time, building something the world doesn't think that we can deliver on. And when we do, you better believe it's going to be a big outcome for us. Pay Club solves a huge problem. I see it and hear it every single day when we speak with our users. So yes, most people, they would have given up a long time ago. Building a bank from scratch, it's not easy. 
But we did it. Now on to the next. Spreading the word, getting more users that love it, and then convincing more investors. In the meantime, I'm working my hardest. I'm giving absolutely everything that I have. I meditate, and I try to live in the moment. That's really all that I can do. Now, my daughter is supposed to be napping right now, but she has not stopped crying while I've been recording this. So I need to go be with her. Living in the moment, right? Hey, Gaurav, managing partner of A4 Capital, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of A4 Capital. You guys have carved out an investing stage in the pre-seed market, which there aren't a lot of uh, investors doing that. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's very, very competitive now, but before we get into what you do now and all that, we got to start at the beginning, like, like we always do. And as I speak with venture investors, very, very few of them knew that they were going to be venture capitalists when they were young. Is that true of you? A hundred percent. I think if you, uh, told my, you know, five, 10, 15 year old self that I'll be, uh, venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, uh, first of all, I would have been super confused because I would not know what any of that, any of that means, but I, I certainly would, would have, like, I would not be able to predict that. I think I, my, my journey uh, to get here has been pretty meandering through lots of uh, different experiences, some good, some bad. Uh, I've learned a lot along the way, and you know I very much believe. I think I think Steve Jobs said this, right? You you connect the dots looking backwards, and I think that's very much been the case uh, in my life. I've uh, I've had a decent amount of clarity on sort of the short term, you know, next three to six months, maybe maybe a year in, at, at some point, uh, but but not much beyond that. And and, uh, and and that's sort of what we tell entrepreneurs as well. The stage we invest, right? It's sort of how I've lived my life. Which is, it's really hard to predict the future, but I, you know, just have a long-term vision and 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 be open to kind of keep iterating on that, and that's what I've done with my life, and you know, happy happy so far. Cool. So, when you were finishing up undergrad, what was your long-term vision then? <laughs> so when I started undergrad, um, I went to University of Waterloo up in Canada. Uh, it's a pretty good engineering school, and when I started there, my long-term vision in my life was to be an engineer at Microsoft, right? Uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in a small town in India. Uh, family moved to Canada when I was in high school. Um, I'd been exposed to math and science pretty early on. Uh, I, 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 you know, jived well with it. I liked it, so I wanted to be a computer scientist, and Microsoft was, you know, one of the best companies at the time. Which is crazy to look back because Microsoft has gone through you know ups and downs in the last 15 years or so themselves. But that was my that was my thing. I was like, oh my god, how can I get a job there as an engineer? And once I do that, like I'll be uh, you know I would have made it. Uh, as I as I went through undergrad, you know uh, that obviously changed. Uh, Microsoft wasn't as cool anymore. Google and Facebook had taken off. So then the vision changed to maybe I want to be an engineer there. Uh, but what something interesting happened when I was an undergrad was I got involved a lot with sort of entrepreneurship-related uh, stuff. I actually started a nonprofit in my first year at undergrad uh, running a conference, uh, an annual conference where we would bring in successful entrepreneurs uh, to this conference and have uh, students, mostly undergrad students, you know, at, at this conference. And, and the vision or the sort of the, the insight there was uh, conventional wisdom is in entrepreneurship, at least, you know, then – was you you get a job at undergrad you 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 build um, your skills you build your resume you learn a lot 
yeah, and then you go start a company. Uh, and and we wanted to kind of flip that on his head to say, look, you don't have to wait to do all of those things before you start a company. Uh, in fact, you should you should strive to do that early on. Uh, but we felt that there was a there's a gap in terms of access to mentors and folks you can learn from. Uh, and that's what this conference was designed to provide. And I think that sort of rubbed off on me too. Uh, and and I got pretty excited about starting something. So actually, in the last year of undergrad, uh, I started a company uh, with a couple of buddies of mine who were also studying software engineering um, at Waterloo. And, uh, and and the product was basically simple. I'd worked at BlackBerry as my first internship in 2004. And I went to Waterloo, which is where BlackBerry started. So it's seen this sort of the smartphone uh, ecosystem grow um, in our in our backyard, essentially. And, and our idea was to take magazine newspaper content and make it look good on BlackBerry, which was still back in the day, this 2007, was pretty bad experience, right? The mobile browser wasn't really there. There was no app store. So we thought we thought we could do better. So graduated in 2008, we raised what would be called our pre-seed round, now about $600,000 in summer 2008 from an angel investor. Uh, that means we took a chance on us and off off to the races we went. That's awesome. So uh, I'm thinking back to there's this article that Bill Gates wrote in 1996 where he called Content is King. And he was basically saying that, have you read the article? I, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's basically saying that you know, eventually Web 1.0 will be magazines and stuff on the internet, but then Web 2.0 will be uh, like a Netflix kind of thing now. How they figured out to adapt beyond just print, move digitally. Yeah, you know, actually, I, I wrote, I read one of his books. Um, I forget exactly what it's called, but I think he published it. The article is probably an excerpt from that, but he published it maybe in the late '80s or, or '90s. And and it's incredible when you read it now how much of what he predicted has come to fruition, right? And obviously not exactly the form he predicted, but, you know, he talks about tablets and essentially iPad, and he talks about some of the technology we see today um, that he was able to predict back then. As so it's interesting to kind of go back and it's almost like going back in a time machine and, and reading some of that stuff and how kind of on point he was. Yeah. So, okay, let's, let's get into this, this entrepreneurial story here then. Uh, I, I still think, I mean, I have guests come on this podcast all the time and they say the best thing you can do for yourself is out of undergrad, go work for a tech company, more on like the startup side, something like a Dropbox or Twitter or something like that. That's, you know, that's having maybe not Twitter, that's maybe a little far along, but something that's having success, raise some money that gets you into the ecosystem, that gets you some skill sets of the startup world. Um, But I always say, fine, if you don't know what you want to do, like doing investment banking, consulting, going to work for a larger startup, that's great. If you do have an idea, like what you're saying, just go do it. Look, I I fully agree with that. And look, there's no right answer here because uh, you can find examples of people that have been successful taking, you know, both of those paths and, and others, right? But uh, but but I I do agree with you that um, you shouldn't have to necessarily wait to acquire some skill set or, or, or whatever, if you already know what you want to build and you have a passion for it and you're willing to dedicate the next five to 10 years of your life to do that. I think if you're not, I, I do on the other extreme, see some people starting companies for the sake of starting a company because it's cool, it's, 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 it's in vogue right now, they can maybe raise money easily. That I think is also bad, but I think somewhere in the middle, if you have a deep desire and passion to do this, or some people you want to work with that you like, that you think would be complimentary, don't wait. Go do it. 
right? Um, and, and you know what's interesting? When, when, so we started a company kind of in undergrad and, and made that our full-time thing once we graduated. What's interesting is sometimes um, people would, once we were pitching our idea, they'd be like, oh, have you heard of this company? Isn't that something similar? <laughs> and, and it was interesting because if we had done a lot of analysis, and, and by the way, I'd never heard of that company. And, and, and we looked it up, we're like, oh, crap, that's actually pretty similar to what we're doing. But, but I think the naive optimism and sort of that blissful ignorance worked in our favor. Because I think if we had done the analysis, if we had, if we had thought up and down the wazoo about this idea, concept, market, we probably would not have started a company, right? Because there's a lot of reasons it would not work, right? And and I think you, when you're young, you have that um, that that uh, uh, privilege of, of being naive, of being of, of willing to take risks. I mean, you know, they say right, like jump off the cliff and kind of make the parachute on the way down. I think you can do that when you're young, and liabilities are much smaller. Uh, and it just gets harder, right? And especially some of these companies that you mentioned, right, give very nice compensation packages. Uh, they stay private longer. And, and you, you think you might be there for a couple of years and you start a company. You, you, before you know it, you might be there for six, and then you're getting married, having kids. It's just it gets harder. So, again, I, 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 I don't like when founders try to, again, predict, okay, I'm going to do this for two years and this, and then I'm going to get to start this company, which will be the next Facebook. I'd say, like, look, if you like it, if you're excited about it, just do it. You can always get that job if this doesn't work out. If you're smart, you would have learned a lot in starting the business. You'll 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 find a home uh, if, if it doesn't work out. Right. It's the idea of just learning as much as you can every single day and not trying to maximize for your salary or how much money you're making, just trying to maximize for how much you're learning. And yeah, a startup is like what they say about investment banking. It's kind of like dog years, seven years worth of stuff for every year of, of work. Hundred percent, and but at the same time, they're not easy, right? So again, I want to reinforce that people shouldn't start companies because they're cool or they're learn a lot. I think all of those things are great, or or or, 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 or well, they'll make a lot of money. I think all of those are byproducts, uh, but I think risk adjusted and the amount of effort it takes to start a company adjusted, it's not the best way to like make money or or learn or build a resume. But I think if you have that passion for it, then you, you you feel that the world needs your product or service, and you feel like the world would be a better place if this existed, and you want to make that happen, and you feel like nobody else is doing a good enough job in bringing that product or service to, to, the, to the world, go do it. Don't wait, right? Resources will come together. Um, things take time to, 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 to build, but, but it will eventually you know, come together um, if you just give it enough time and, and stay focused. Yep. I love it. Okay. So Gaurav, finish up, uh, this, this piece of the story with this startup and then let's get to the, let's get to Google. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've been a startup for the, for about three years. The company is actually still running. A good friend of mine runs, runs the company CEO. I've got about 50 employees or so. Um, so I was there for three years and then I actually ended up joining the Android team. Uh, this is 2009, uh, and I was brought in uh, essentially uh, to help grow the market share for the for the platform. When I joined Android, we had about uh, just shy of a, of a million users total, and I joined in as a product manager to to lead the Nexus product line as a lead PM for Nexus One. Uh, we launched that kind of early 2010, um, and it was a great time to be on the Android platform uh, to see to see kind of the growth of, of Android as an operating system and smartphones in general. And it was very much, again, like looking backwards and connect the dots. I worked at BlackBerry 
in 2004, started this mobile company in 07, uh, and then ended up on the Android team. And again, I could not have predicted that <laughs> when I started at Waterloo. I thought I was going to be an engineer at Microsoft. So, um, you know, that sort of was a trajectory to, uh, to, to Google. Right. Okay. And it sounds like you're there at the early days. You're working on a something you know a little bit about the mobile product. And uh, I'm reading in your bio that you got the Founders Award, which is the highest employee achievement award at Google. Is, is Google like the Army? They have they have awards for for top. It's like a Purple Heart. <laughs> yeah. So and obviously a huge huge honor and privilege for me to get that. So Google has this thing. Google has, as I'm sure a lot of big companies do, but multiple kind of levels of awards, right, for different accomplishments internally. Um, and, and the Founders Award is uh, essentially given, um, you know, for something that just meaningfully moves the dial at Google, which company, of course, at that scale, you know, the bar is pretty high. So I think historically, the folks that worked on the Chrome team early on, you know, got the award and I'm sure some of the AdWords folks and so on and so forth. So I, I, I was, um, uh, um, you know, I received this award for, for my work on Android. Um, and of course, you know, Android is a... Uh, uh, it's a pretty meaningful part of, you know, Google today um, with, you know, 2 billion users plus and, you know, drives a lot of the revenue on the, the ad side. Um, so that was, yeah. Right. So, you know, you, you had this undergrad experience of being very involved in startups and then you go work at a very, very big company. It was, well, while you were at Google, was that fulfilling your entrepreneurial needs or was that, were those unmet during that time? Yeah, look, Google, um, I'd say, is a very entrepreneurial company for its size. But I'm going to underline the for its size part because inevitably when – and when I joined Google, I think it was maybe about 15,000 people or so. But by the time I left, it was up to like 50,000 plus. So it grew a lot um, you know, while I was there. And as you can see when a company grows at that pace and there's more and more layers of management, decision-making, um, you know, the – the uh, the risk of doing something wrong, right, around whether that's privacy or something legal, is very high, right? Because because you get you get you know slapped on the wrist pretty often if you're at Google scale if there's any kind of bad bad press. Um, so, so, but even for that size, I think you know Google is able to innovate and come up with new products, take risks, fail, so on and so forth. And I think I had the luxury of being part of a, a very small team and, and, and at the time I joined a relatively small uh, project, right? I mean, we didn't really drive much revenue for, for Google. It was a small team. So we, we kind of got a chance to hang out in our little corner um, and, and that reduced some of the, the bureaucracy and, and red tape that you'll see for, for big companies. But look, it's, it's still not the same, nowhere close it is to uh, being part of startups early on, right? And I'd kind of seen that with obviously my own startup. Um, but it was a good experience for me to kind of see Android grow. Um, but I knew after kind of a couple of years there that uh, I, I was just not the kind of guy that, you know, is at the company of Google size and it just wasn't moving fast enough for me. I think the uh, one of the interesting kind of um, uh, counterintuitive uh, insights I had at Google was um, – whether my product launched or not, it really didn't. It made no difference necessarily to the, to the bottom line, right? At some point, right? The 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 bar to like move the dial for Google just became higher and higher each time, which as, as personally is just becomes more and more unsatisfying, right? I think that's what you get in the startup world is any change you make, and that's one extreme. But like any change you make, every customer you get, like 
it's something it's a reason to celebrate right across the across the company and i think that you just miss that at at a company of google's size yeah so gaurav this question kind of gets gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning here so you went from a startup to google and then you left google and you went to i guess i mean kind of another quasi startup so was it do you think it was easier to go from google to a smaller company than it was to go from your startup to google that's a good question. Um, look, I, I'm not sure. I, I think there's some things that are easier, some things that are harder, right? I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if I'd characterize. I think it's hard to generalize because when I went from a startup to Google, you know, in a startup, I had to worry about things that were just things that you have to do, but they're, they're just it's frustrating, right? So, you know, I remember one time our uh, internet bill somehow, this is like pre-AWS days, like was like off the charts one month. And I was like, guys, what what happened? Like, this is going to put us out of, out of business. And, and it turns out there was a bug in the code and like we were doing something really inefficiently and our bandwidth usage was off the charts and it was under operation. Anyway, so things like that, you're just like, oh my God, like that, I, I don't want to worry about the internet bill and like, I want to build products. I want to like get customers. Like that's what moves, you know, moves things forward. Not, you know, worrying about these random little things at Google, you're completely insulated from all of that stuff. You get to focus on what you love doing. Right. So, so that, that, and I can give you tons more examples of things you have to worry about in a startup, including obviously keeping it alive. I remember there was uh, there was a time that we started the company in 2008 when things were great. And then we went through, you know, what happened in, in 2008, 2009, before we raised our series A, there were, it was a matter of like a couple of weeks where we ran out of money. Right. And we had 23 employees. And I remember having to get up in front of everybody and, and, and address them and tell them what's going on. And then we're not going to make paycheck on, on Friday. Uh, but continue working really hard because we've got customers in the pipeline and, and we're confident we're going to be able to, to close out this round and we're going to keep running. Like is those experiences um, are tough, right? Which are things you just don't have to worry about at Google. At Google, getting more budget and the millions of dollars, you know, if you can make a case, it's not, not hard, right? Um, so I think those things are easier, but certain things are harder, right? Because getting, getting approval for product launches was, was much harder at, at Google. Um, you have to go through legal, you have to go through compliance, privacy, you have to worry about X, Y, Z. And, you know, anytime you're, you're uh, talking to media, you have to be really careful. Things that you never have to worry about in a startup. Um, so, so I think it, 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 it's, it's, it's easy in some ways, it's harder in some ways. And I think going back again, uh, <laughs> one thing I definitely miss not being at Google now for many years is the gourmet food I got to eat every day at, at, at <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner for free, right? And, and things you just, they were taken care of. They'll, they'll bus you around. They'll take you from home. They'll take you to the office. You know, they've got the gym on site. It's just certain things were easier that you're now going back in the startup world. You're like, oh, man, I miss that. <laughs> I miss those days. Well, look, yeah. I, I think it's a personality fit. I'm a startup guy. I love being in small teams. I love working with startups really early on. And uh, to me, that's that's fun and hence feels easier than being in a big company. Right. Well, it's it's also, I mean, it's, you're very fortunate to have been able to have both experiences. Many entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs because they, they can't get jobs at Google, right? So you are able to see both. You are able to articulate and understand which one's better for you. And then you can go follow that path. So let's, uh, let's move beyond Google and Grav, tell us, you know, what was next? 
Yeah, so I left in uh, 2011, and I left initially to go to business school. So I moved uh, back to the East Coast, and while I was in business school, I, I, even before I went to business school, I kind of knew that I wanted to, um, to to try venture, right, and see if I liked it. I'd been exposed to venture, of course, from my startup where we raised money from VCs, and I was always intrigued by kind of that role that VCs play where they get to work with lots of startups early, early on and kind of rinse and repeat. And I thought that was, that was interesting, but obviously never, never, you know, pursued it until I decided to leave Google um, to, to go to business school. I said, look, maybe this is the time I can experiment and see if it's a good fit for me or not. So I started working with a fund actually in my first year uh, called Founder Collective uh, on the East Coast. They're based in, in Boston and New York at the time. Uh, and Founder Collective started by a couple of guys, a similar kind of background founders that turned into investors, right? Um, so they had that empathy of what it's like to be on the on the founding team and build a company, but at the same time now wanted to be on the on the investor side. So I joined when they were investing out of Fund One, which is a $50 million fund. So I started working part-time uh, while I was in business school, about 10 to 20 hours a week. I did my summer with them full-time between my two years, continued working part-time in the second year, and then I joined them full-time once I graduated. So I was there for a total of four and a half years uh, and a phenomenal time, and I learned a lot about venture. Uh, and, and you know, once you're on this side of the table, you realize that uh, so much of being a VC is just not obvious when you're when you're a founder, right? And what it takes to not just find great companies, but what it takes to pick those companies and how do you help them, right? And the best analogy I've been able to find is kind of the difference between being a coach and an athlete, right? Where, you know, not all great athletes make great coaches and vice versa. And I think it's a different skill set, even though you're playing the same sport. Uh, it's a pretty different skill set of what it takes to be to be good at it. Um, and, and, and different people have different interests and, and skill sets. So there's, again, no one kind of right answer, which side you want to be. Uh, but anyway, we did that for four and a half years, did about 26 odd investments, um, uh, including uh, we invested for early. So uh, companies, a lot of them are still kind of running and building the business. But we're very fortunate to be seed investors in companies like Cruise Automation that was acquired by General Motors, building driverless cars, a company called DIN Co., which was started actually by a couple of my business school classmates. That raised a series A from Sequoia Capital to come that's doing really well in the e-commerce space. Um, coming out Firebase that was acquired by Google uh, and a whole host of other investments. I learned a lot, and then that really led me to start a four a couple of years ago uh, with a friend of mine. And the one thing I'd noticed at, at Founder Collective when I was there is when I joined in early 2012, the seed round used to be kind of a million, million and a half dollar round. By the time I left, they were closer to five million dollars in size. And hence, the kind of risk that the seed funds were willing to take and what they wanted to see in these companies had changed quite dramatically. And we saw this gap that had emerged kind of at what used to be seed a few years ago, um, which was unfilled, right? Uh, and we felt there was an opportunity to build an institutional fund to back these companies when they are, you know, quote, unquote, too early for everybody else and help them get to the next stage and hence sort of the birth of a four. Yeah, everything is in the startup world that's kind of moved up market, you know, where you maybe used to be able to get into an accelerator with just an idea or a business plan or something. Now it's, you need a product and you need traction on that product. And, and that's considered the earliest, earliest stage. And I'm seeing this now with, with my startup. It's funny, you, you're on these venture capitalist websites and they say, we invest at the very earliest stages of companies. And then you talk to them and they're like, yeah, we invest you know, a, mil a minimum of $1 million at the seed and 
we sometimes don't even invest to the Series A, and you're like, well, how is that the very earliest stage of a company? I mean, there's there's years before that, and, and lots of investment before that. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a very very interesting niche that, or I mean, maybe it's much much bigger than a niche, but it, but that you're investing in. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's the new seed, right? And in the challenge with venture, uh, I think a lot of people outside the industry don't appreciate is that there's an inherent conflict between ambition and discipline, right? Uh, and what does that mean? So, you know, if you're ambitious, and a lot of folks obviously in the industry are, um, the way you express that is by, if you're successful, raising a bigger fund and building a bigger team and, you know, and, and you know, getting involved in bigger checks and so on and so forth. Like, that's how you express ambition in venture capital. It's the same way, like, if you were to start a company, you want a bigger team, you know, more customers, more revenue, so on and so forth. But the challenge is when you do that, your time doesn't scale proportionally because it is inherently a very high-touch services business, right? We're in, the, we're in the business of helping our founders build great companies. And when your time doesn't proportionally scale, you end up having to write bigger checks. Uh, when you take, write bigger checks, you take less risk because obviously you don't want to lose a lot of capital. You take less risk, you end up moving downstream. So it's a very natural kind of um, you know, progression. Right um, for most successful VCs, and, and, and in some ways, it's it's good because it creates opportunities for entrepreneurs like us to um, to find these uh, these gaps uh, that have that have been created because people have vacated those those spaces, and that's what that's what gives us an opportunity, a leg in the door to start the fund. But but that's sort of what's happened, right? And I think most people in the industry obviously recognize this, but there's just no way to. Um, you know, to 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 fix it, right? It's just a structural kind of, um, you know, structural characteristic of of the of the asset class. Right. That's interesting. I have never. I I like that analogy of ambition and and discipline. It, I've never thought about it that way, but that makes that makes really good sense. So. How do you get involved with companies now? You know, companies like mine, we talk with big investors. They say, this is great, but you're too early. That maybe means it's perfect for you. So tell us like size, stage, and then like what you look for in getting involved with a company. Yeah, so our, our typical check size is somewhere between half a million to a million dollars. Um, you know, the rounds are somewhere between half a million to like a million and a half or so on the, on the top end. So we're comfortable. We like to lead, but we're also comfortable taking up the entire round and bringing in some angels. Um, so we really play the institutional role, right? I think the, the, the opportunity we saw or the challenge we saw when we started at four was that founders – could raise that first half a million million dollars, but it was collecting a lot of small angel checks, right? And nobody really was willing to roll up their sleeves and help the companies get to the next stage, especially for first-time founders. You know, like everybody else, you, you need to help. You can use that mentorship and guidance. So, so we play that lead role. Um, you know, we will um, we will help you around product. Uh, we'll help you around go-to-market. We'll help you with recruiting. Uh, building out the early bench, and, and most importantly, will help you fundraising for the next next round. And because my partner and I have been in those shoes and those seed and series of funds that you'll be pitching to, we can um, we can be very helpful because we're inside the tent, but at the same time, we can tell you what it's like to be be on the on the other side. Um, you know what we look for uh, because we're investing so early, and there is you know in a lot of cases. Uh, certainly, no product market fit, but a lot of times, no traction, no re- no meaningful revenue. What we look for is really to understand the founders, right? Um, and we and we love founders that are just obsessed about products, right? Because at the early stages where we invest, ultimately, um, you know, you have to to win through a great product, right? Like solving a, a an interesting big problem, 
uh, in a way that the customers love it. Right? And we really try to understand how the founders are thinking about the, the problem or opportunity they're going after and why we believe they'll be able to win right, and execute. And a lot of this is like obviously a leap of faith. So we try to understand what they've done in the past, we try to understand how much thought they've put into this particular concept. Um, we will try to do our diligence talking to potential customers. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to other folks in the industry that we know just to kind of triangulate and get a better sense of, you know, whether this is a, a viable opportunity and if the way they're thinking about it actually makes sense or not. Right. So, so that's a typical kind of diligence process. You know, there isn't a lot of data, obviously. So a lot of it tends to be qualitative. And, and that's sort of where, you know, we can, um, uh, we find that we can create value because most investors want to see the quantitative information, right? Show me your CAC to LTV, show me, you know, how your growth rate, show me, you know, all of this data sets, which is fine because they're writing a big check. I think for us, we can, uh, we can move much faster, make a, make a conviction-driven um, uh, decision when these companies are still pretty early. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's really interesting to hear. So, Gaurav, the... This will be the last question of the podcast. It's the last question always has to do with advice. So you spoke about looking back on your career and being able to connect the dots. And that's something easier to, to do in hindsight than it is when you're in the weeds and fighting every day, trying to, trying to survive. So what do you tell someone graduating from college today that is trying to figure out what their place in the world is? You know, they're a hard worker, they're smart. They don't know. They don't have a startup idea. They, you know, like what kind of advice could could you give to someone like that? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll say a bunch of different things, and we, we touched on one a little bit. I, I'd say, like, follow your passion, right? Uh, and, and that, by the way, that may evolve over time. I think people put too much emphasis on like, oh, what were you passionate about when you were growing up, and like that should be what should dictate the rest of your life. I don't know. I don't believe that to be true. Honestly, I wanted to be a commercial pilot growing up and obviously I'm not doing that right now. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that because as, as I grew up, I realized like, you know, different things attracted me more. And I think you should follow like the passion in the moment, right. And, and, and work your butt off and do great work and then let that kind of decide what you want, what you want to do next. At least that's how I've kind of pursued my, my life. And and don't worry about if you don't have a clear idea of what you want to be, quote unquote, when you grow up or even in five years. But at the same time, be willing to work really, really hard uh, because it's a competitive world out there, right? And I think I see a lot of people um, that that just, um, from my perspective, feel very privileged and want things to come easy to them. Um, maybe that's how it's been them growing up. But I, but I think the people that win ultimately are just willing to hustle. And uh, and go above and beyond and think two steps ahead. So I, I think that's important. Um, I also, and this is more just my philosophy in, in life um, in general, is you know I, I focus on kind of less in, in making the the right decision, but more about making the decision right. Right. So let me let me kind of clarify that for a second. So I think a lot of people get caught up on like, oh, let me get all the data to like make that right decision. Like, what's that? job I should take next, like, because there is, like, as, as if there's, like, one that one job, right, and everything else, like, is just terrible, right? Uh, and again, I'm not saying just, like, on a whim, just throw darts on the board and figure out what to do in your life, but I think at some point, it has to be conviction-driven where you're, like, look, I've collected enough data, I don't have 100% clarity if this is the right thing, but it feels like in my gut that's the right thing, 
But then once you make that decision, you're like all in, right? And then you're not questioning yourself and you're like, look, I, now I'm just going to go all in to make this right. Like I have to be successful at it because I don't have another option, right? That's it. And, and and I feel like because people too, put too much emphasis on making that right decision, when they once they've made the decision, they then have like buyer's remorse. I'm like, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision because, you know, how come there's this, you know, information that's now coming up that I just didn't know before. And I think this may be the wrong thing to do or the wrong job because my manager sucks. And man, how, do, how come I didn't diligence that? You know, just, I think you have to make things work, right? Uh, of course, if, if it's like clearly not working, like figure out something else because that's too short. But like, I, it, I, that's sort of how I've made a lot of my decisions. And, um, and at least for me, both in work and personal life, it feels like, feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, Gaurav, that's great advice. I mean, I, I take it to heart. This was, this was really fun speaking with you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is a pleasure and hopefully your listeners find some of it to be helpful. I'm sure they will. Well, we'll talk soon, Gaurav. Thank you again. Good stuff. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks.